Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Self Help Witch. I'm your host, Dee Michelle, and I have a question for you. Why do otherwise smart, kind, quote-unquote normal people routinely ruin their lives over a relationship that anyone could see is objectively harmful. I keep seeing so many stories with this same plot line of great person meets this other person who seems great and then they're not and the first person's life is ruined. What I want to really talk about today is the spiritual angle here. What is going on spiritually in this dichotomy where someone trades their agency for what someone else is selling them? I want to look at what happens internally when we resign our power to someone else and the dangers that unfold from that choice. The truth that most of us do not want to acknowledge is that We all have been the victim in a situation like this at some point to varying degrees. And thankfully, I would say for most of us, it doesn't go so far as destroying our lives. But if you think back to maybe high school, if you ever gave in to peer pressure, you essentially were in the same situation as someone who's being gaslighted and manipulated and taken advantage of by a narcissistic type of person. Because what is happening in both scenarios is there's something you want that you can get, but you have to compromise your values. So for example, I remember being at a party in high school and there was drinking. I wasn't a drinker in high school. I was actually afraid of getting in trouble (laughs) and I desperately wanted to fit in. I desperately wanted people to like me and I also really didn't want to feel the crushing weight of my social anxiety. So I discarded my values, I ignored my instincts. And I did something that I thought would get me what I wanted, which was to feel less afraid and to fit in. That to me, that underlying pattern is no different than what happens to someone who willingly enters a relationship that they know is bad for them. So you can see how we all have put ourselves in a situation like this to some degree. What's really, I think, the most important question to ask about these types of situations is why do we stop listening to our instincts? At what point do we agree to put more stock in what other people tell us to do versus what we instinctively, intuitively know to do? Because that is the exact point when we lose our agency and our power, and we are the most vulnerable we could possibly be. This is how people end up ruining their lives, because someone else, a predator, knew exactly what to say, knew exactly what we would sell ourselves for. So we're going to examine this in a lot more detail in the episode, and 
really just try to answer this question, how do people lose their instincts from a spiritual point of view? And we're also going to explore ways to restore your innate intuitive instincts if they feel disconnected from you, which by the way, my take is they're never disconnected from you. They're a part of you. It's impossible for your intuition to be disconnected from you, but it can go quiet if you're not making space for it and if you're afraid to listen to it, which I think is what most of us experience when we feel like our intuition has left us. And, you know, this is definitely a question I've thought about in my own healing journey. I have certainly found myself in what I call what-the-fuck situations. <laughs> As in, you kind of look around and say, why the fuck am I here? Who the fuck is this? What the fuck is going on? Why am I in this relationship? Why am I with this group of people? Why am I in this place? All of my worst WTF moments came flooding back to me when I was watching this Netflix docu-series called Bad Vegan. Bad Vegan follows the demise of Sarma Melangalis, a vegan chef who for a period of time owned a renowned vegan restaurant. She was literally known worldwide. Her restaurant would be booked out for months in advance and she was on top of the world. In the docu-series, we witness her demise as she goes from literally getting flirty tweets from Alec Baldwin to being on the run, holed up in Dollywood, eating Domino's with this guy who calls himself Shane, his real name's Anthony, and he's a sick man who cons her and her loved ones and ultimately destroys her life. The thing is, we watch this show and we think, did she not consent? Did she not agree to do what he asked her to do? Because she does. We get to hear the conversations. But looking at these interactions from a different point of view reveals there's more to the story. She did consent, but we know it's not that simple. The not so simple part is what I want to dig into in this episode. What was going on for her mentally and emotionally when she agreed to wire $1.6 million to this man, run her business into the ground, and then leave New York City like none of this ever happened? How did he get her to go from who she was to what she became? So to help explain this not-so-simple undertone of what was going on for Sarma, we're going to use a what we call in the teaching world a mentor text. That makes it sound super boring. <laughs> we're going to use a story. And one of my favorite books for these didactic kind of stories is Women Who Run With the Wolves by Dr. Clarissa Pinkola Estes. You probably already know about it, but if you don't, it is a collection of myths and fairy tales that have stood the test of time that Estes interprets from the lens of rewilding for women. Her whole kind of thesis in this book is that Women have been systematically robbed and deprived of 
their quote wildish nature as she calls it which is really to say your instinctual side that intuitive part of you that our culture over time has really done a lot to break us from that but that it's possible to return to that and that through studying the stories that contain the archetypes of how to hone and protect your wildish nature, your intuition, we can get the lessons we need to do the same. In other words, we can relearn and rewild ourselves from hearing the truth in these stories. So I chose a story from this book. It's the story of Bluebeard. And we will use that story in tandem with Sarma's story in order to explore Sarma's fall from grace and... In synthesizing these two stories, my intention is to shine a light on how what happened to Sarma could happen to any of us, and also how we can go about protecting ourselves and avoiding a similar fate. Something I feel that's really important to establish before we dive into this is that there are actually several parts of self. When we think about the self, even the word self itself implies one right? Self-awareness, authentic self, the true self. All of these imply there's just one self. But actually within us, there are a lot of different parts of us that have different goals and motivations. And what you call these different parts of you really doesn't matter. I like to think of them as different parts of self that arose from different stages and experiences I have in my life, and some are inherently a part of me. Some were with me when I was born. And, you know, that's exactly what we're looking at when we look at a birth chart, actually, is the different parts of self. I digress. (laughs) It's important to think about this because the ego is a part of self that wants praise, recognition, and achievement. And there's nothing wrong with that. Some spiritual people will talk about the ego like it's ruining your life. And actually, we live in the material world. And I believe we're here to accomplish things in the material world. So it makes sense and it's natural and normal and beautiful that people want to do things in the material world. But if we don't see that for what it is, we can get taken for a ride. Estes argues in Women Who Run With Wolves that there is a natural predator within all of us as well. And this natural predator wants the opposite of what it is we actually desire. Essentially, it's a self-sabotaging element of the self. It wants to stop us from doing what we want. It's a natural against nature force. What this natural predator's goal is, is to sever us from our intuition. It's a cutting, which facilitates a type of deadening. Estes says that when the predator has got us, that we begin to feel frail to advance in life, that our ideas and dreams lie at our feet drained of animation. This is all to say that, first of all, there is a part of us that wants to self-sabotage. And it is important that we recognize that within ourselves. Because if we don't, 
then we are as vulnerable as we could possibly be to this predator. In Sarma's case, she and her family describe her as being a somewhat withdrawn yet very driven person. And when she met Anthony, the guy who conned her out of all of her money in her whole life, she was coming off a public, ugly divorce. She was running her very popular, successful restaurant entirely alone. And it's pretty easy to see she had a lot of stress in her life. This is a ripe opportunity for a predator within us or outside of us to strike. It's easy to see how vulnerable she was just in the sense of wanting a partner. When you're coming off any kind of ending of a relationship, that's always challenging, especially a divorce, especially when you're a celebrity, especially when everybody else knows about what's going on in your business. And then you have the stress of running a very busy, successful business as well. Of course, she is going to want a partner. Of course, she's feeling insecure. Of course, anyone who knows the right thing to say to her could pretty easily manipulate her. And I am not blaming Sarma for what happened to her because as I said, and I'll say it many more times probably, I could see this happening to me or anyone I know under the right circumstances. Anthony found her under the exact right circumstances to do what he did to her. Now, even if you're not in a vulnerable state, the thing is we all have dreams, wishes, hopes, and when we want them bad enough, they can morph into a fantasy. What the predator does is sells you your fantasy. They figure out exactly what you want, and then they convince you that they can give it to you. That's how they trap you. Now, when you're vulnerable, the prospect of your dreams slash fantasies becoming a reality can obviously make us do things that we wouldn't normally do. Because the fantasy dangling in front of us convinces us not to listen to our instincts. And this is the exact moment where things start to go awry and we trade our agency for what someone's promising us. This is where we're going to enter the story of Bluebeard. So, in the story of Bluebeard, there are three sisters and a man with a blue beard. And this guy, Bluebeard, he's been flirting with the sisters, and they blow him off. They think he's weird. But he doesn't give up. He plans a fancy picnic in the woods. He gets these horses with ribbons. He invites their mom. And the three sisters and the mother ride on the horses into the woods and have a lovely picnic. He wines and dines them, and... Eventually, he asks for the youngest sister's hand in marriage, and she says yes. Now, of course, this whole story is going to be <laughs> it talked about allegorically and metaphorically. This particular part is a metaphor for subduing your instincts in favor of believing the fantasy. Because guess what? The sisters knew that Bluebeard was full of shit. He's weird. Why is his beard blue? There's something off about him. They knew instinctively that he was not to be messed with. But because he kept trying and he eventually did the right thing, 
And when I say did the right thing, I mean the right thing to get them to ignore the fact that his beard is blue, which happened to be taking them out to the woods and giving them good food and wine. Because they gave the predator even an inch, he was able to weasel his way in. Why? Because he seemed nice. And this is why our stereotype of what a predator is, is so harmful and devastating and like perpetuates these kinds of things happening to good people. Because the predator is not... <laughs> Anytime I say the word predator, I see a dinosaur in my head. <laughs> the predator is not a dinosaur. <laughs> predator is not a always a man in a van offering you candy. In fact, rarely. A predator is going to show up as everything you ever wanted. And not even everything you materially wanted. Everything you want on a very deep level, the things you value in your core that truthfully you may not even realize yourself. That's when you are in the most danger. Because a Narcissist, a sociopath, is skilled, excellent at recognizing what's important to you and using that against you. This is what Bluebeard does in order to win the sister's hand in marriage. And this is what Anthony did to Sarma in Bad Vegan. He knew she was vulnerable and he just fabricated an entire life that not only made him more mysterious to her, but also gave him this sort of superhero-esque allure that she found really attractive. So when Anthony meets Sarma, he's going by the name Shane Fox. And Sarma actually finds out about Anthony via Twitter. So I mentioned that she was like friends with Alec Baldwin at one point, And on Twitter... Shane, aka Anthony, was having these little Twitter exchanges with Alec, and Sarma saw those tweets, and she was like, oh, he's kind of funny. He must know Alec. He must not be that bad. Aha. And so we see the parallel to Bluebeard already. As soon as we say, he seems fine, he seems okay, things aren't always as they seem. And we've got to hold on to that because, again, the predator is so good at making you think they're not so bad. So he gets into her life, and the thing is, once we've agreed to the predator's fantasy, they will continue to siphon your individual energy, making you dependent on them emotionally, physically, and intellectually. And they will do everything in their power to keep you from recognizing and acknowledging the destruction and the havoc they're wreaking in your life. And as long as you are a willing participant in turning a blind eye, you will be a prisoner of this person. Anthony, as I said, did a lot to shroud himself in mystery from the beginning. Now, he implied he had a job with Black Ops. I think he might have even said the words Black Ops. I don't know, but he would be gone for several days frequently and tell Sarma crazy stuff. Like, he would be in random countries. He could never talk about work. There was a lot that she didn't know, and it made her think... Because, again, the underlying idea is, oh, he's not that bad. He seems 
normal. He seems fine. She's already allowing the lies to be believed. Oh, well, he really is gone. And I mean, if he does work for Black Ops, he probably can't tell me about it. So it's she's just excusing the fact that he's telling her nothing about his life from the get-go. Which, again, could happen to any of us. The other effect that this mystery job has for Sarma is it makes her feel like he's kind of like this superhero figure. You know, he's out there saving the world, <laughs> doing black ops. I don't even know what, like, is that even a real thing? I feel like that's just a thing in Halo. Who knows? Uh, I don't know, obviously. But he makes himself seem so important. And there's also an element of him being a protector. Remember how vulnerable, alone, and probably afraid she is. Like, the shit she had just gone through was a lot for anybody to take, and it wasn't over yet. So for this guy to come in who seems to be very powerful, seems to have a lot of money too, he's always got a lot of cash on him, there's something very alluring about that if you're Sarma. Probably if you're anybody. But that's exactly what Sarma wanted. He took it a step further, though, into this, like, spiritual realm. So it starts with him asking for help. He'd be stuck somewhere, on a job, and he'd be like... I don't know if he ever said this, but the implication was that, like, he was being held hostage. Like, why are 10,000 right now or they kill me? Stuff like that. So, because she thinks he's got this illustrious job, because she's seen him with a ton of money, she's like, yeah, no problem. And she does it. And, of course, just like a typical con man, he would get some of it back to her. Occasionally. Enough times and often enough for her to think, okay, he's good for it, and then to keep doing it. Of course, he does that much less often than he asks her for money because he's really not going to give any of it back to her. But this is how it begins. And it gets weirder. Now, in Sarma's case, Anthony knew about Sarma's open-minded spiritual views. She was like many of us, right? just kind of open-minded to the possibilities of what might be the case about why we're here, what might be real, what could be real. He does bring in these vague spiritual concepts in their discussions. He will reference this cosmic family. He'll talk about the family and how he's part of this essentially like network of who knows. He's like kind of implying that they're not of this world, I guess is the best way to say this, but he's really being incredibly vague about it. What Sarma's led to believe, or what he tells her, is more or less that this group of people, this family he belongs to, is incredibly powerful, more money than you can even think of. And if she sticks with him and passes these tests she will also have the protection of the family. As spiritual people, I think we can see how horrifying this is. Because 
you do hear words like up level and passing tests, etc. in spiritual communities. And I'm not saying there's no credence to learning a lesson and quote unquote leveling up in your life because that is what self-development is. But we can clearly see how Anthony has taken this lingo and co-opted it. And if we're people who subscribe to spiritual beliefs and we're not careful, we're not, we don't have our spidey senses going, we can hear stuff like that and think, oh yeah, like I get that. When really it's not that at all. This is somebody manipulating you to get something out of you. Now in the story of Bluebeard, Bluebeard also tests his new wife. He tells her, I'm leaving for a trip and you can do whatever you want. You can go in any room, you can go in the courtyard, you can have picnics. You can do anything you want except use this little key on my massive key ring. So Anthony says to Sarma, this is a test to see if you're loyal to me essentially and more than she even knows that's true. For Sarma, she thinks, yeah, it's a test because he wants to provide for me and he wants to make sure I'm worthy or this group, this family needs to make sure that I'm up to par. Really what it is, is Anthony testing her loyalty to see how far he can take this with her. And Bluebeard is also testing his wife's loyalty with this false sense of freedom. You can do anything but open that door. So if we understand that the way we lose the connection to our intuition and our instincts is by allowing ourselves to be sold a fantasy of everything we ever dreamed of, the question becomes how do we get our agency back? In order to save ourselves, we have to acknowledge the truth of what's become of our lives, which if you've been in any kind of situation, even remotely close to this, is one of the most difficult things you could ever have to do. Now in Bluebeard, what happens is the young wife's sisters come over after Bluebeard goes on his trip and she tells them, he said we can do whatever we want except use this key. And immediately because the sisters represent the intuition and the instinctive nature, they say, we got to find out where this key works. We got to find the door. So they go looking. They look all over the castle. They open every single room in the castle. They're in the basement. They've opened the final door, at least they think, because then they hear a creaking sound. They go around the corner and they see one final tiny door. They open the door and there is a room full of blood skeletons and carnage. It is a frightening scene and they immediately close and lock the door. When they take the key out of the door, the key is bleeding. There is a steady stream of blood coming from this key and no matter what the sisters do, no matter how hard they clean it, no matter what they wrap it in, no matter where they hide it, the key will not stop bleeding. I think this is where the metaphor gets really interesting. The key symbolizes and the door in the room, our awareness of what's happened to us, what we've allowed to happen to us. It's what happens when you see the reality of your situation. 
you can't unsee it, which is essentially what trying to clean the key represents. It's trying to forget that actually there's something very off about the situation. And why would you want to forget it? Because you still want the fantasy. You want the fantasy to be real. And it's obviously much more exciting for us to believe the fantasy is real. It's a lot scarier to see the truth than it is to keep going with the fantasy. The key bleeding is very fascinating as well. This bleeding key is depicting what's happening to us spiritually when we refuse to acknowledge the facts of our own lives and ignore our intuitive instincts. When we ignore our intuition, we are draining our own life force, our agency, of our own accord. We are willingly exchanging it for that fantasy. Estes in Women Who Run With The Wolves refers to this as like a spiritual anemia. We feel lifeless, drained, and it's because we've traded our life force for the fantasy. In Bad Vegan, the parallel is that Sarma allows the bleeding to continue by giving Shane or Anthony money despite not being able to make payroll. So in other words, there are very real consequences in her life that she is choosing to ignore, willfully turning a blind eye to. Like It would be like she hid the key and then never took it back out, right? She sees the bleeding is happening, but she's not doing anything about it. And Anthony convinces her that he'll pay her back, of course, and he eventually weasels his way into being part owner of the restaurant. I don't know if that actually happened on paper or not. I can't remember. But he establishes himself with the employees as part owner. And that's when the business, of course, starts to run into the ground even more than it was before. So Sarma gets herself into a position where she actually has to raise more money to keep the business going because she gets so far behind on her bills and her payroll. And she is able to somehow, I think she raised $8 million. And of course, Anthony took that too, because that was his plan all along, right? And at this point, she's really got nowhere to go because she's asked everyone she knows for help, for money, and they gave it to her. And now she has nothing again. So, Metaphorically speaking, she let the key bleed for so long that she had nothing left to give, literally and spiritually, I would argue. So and when she talks about this in the show, she says, I just couldn't face my reality anymore. So I did whatever he told me. He said, we've got to go, and we left New York City. And what she really was doing was abandoning her business and her employees and her life. This idea of, I just can't handle my reality, like give me anything but this, this is what happens when we refuse to acknowledge the bleeding. It's literally refusing to look at the carnage in the secret room, even though you know it's there. There's a part of you that knows it's there, as depicted by the older sisters. And look, again, I'm not saying it's easy to look at that, especially when you get that deep. It is absolutely terrifying and shameful and guilt-inducing to acknowledge 
that things even got to be this way. It's very difficult to acknowledge that. But it's the only way we can begin to recover our instincts. The first step to recovering instincts from a predator is to trust the animal part of you, the aggressive, primal, even the predator-esque parts of you. So in Bluebeard, the wife calls upon her brothers who are meant to represent her rage, her aggression, her more kind of primal feelings. And this is what we need when we are the victim of a predator. We need to stop thinking because thinking is what got us here in the first place. We rationalized strange behavior, a blue beard, thinking they're not so bad. That kind of thinking is what gets us away from our instincts in the first place. So do not fall prey to rationalizing your situation. See what you've lost and get angry about it. Then you get to embody the predator. You get to hunt the hunter and take decisive cunning action. In Bluebeard, what happens is Bluebeard comes home and he's like, where's the little key? And she gives it to him and it's bleeding. And of course he knows immediately what happened and he says, I'm going to kill you too. She instinctively says, please just give me 15 minutes to make peace with God. And he says, okay, but then I'm coming to kill you. In that moment, that request, she is now the predator because what she's doing is feigning agreement. She's pretending to still be the same old person she was in order to get his defenses down because he thinks it's the same old person. In the meantime, she's plotting and scheming by getting her brothers to come help her. And that's what we must do in real life. We need to get the predator off of our scent, off of our tracks, and then find a way out, summon the courage, summon the rage to do the thing that needs to be done, which is usually to leave and to completely extricate yourself from whatever situation you find yourself in. As she's pretending to pray, the young wife does call for her brothers and at just the last moment, they break into the castle and they kill Bluebeard, saving the young wife. In Sarma's case, unfortunately, I don't think we can say that the brothers came to save the day. So throughout the docuseries, Sarma is talking about her story as if, in hindsight, she can see how wild this is. She seems ashamed, but like somewhat at peace. Like this is, it's been, you know, over 10 years since the start of this, and it just seems like she's not happy about it, but kind of accepted what's happened. She is visibly upset in parts, and I personally felt for her because, as I said, I saw myself in her, and I think this could happen to anybody. However, the very last soundbite we get in the, in the docuseries is a call between Anthony and Sarma. Now, I won't give all the spoilers, but she's lost her restaurant, 
gotten in trouble for defrauding her investors, been made a mockery of on national TV and the media. So as they're talking, there's like a lighthearted tone. They're both laughing. And she says something like, you're really going to have to prove it to me. What are you going to do? Just take off your meat suit? And he says something to the effect of, yeah, I know, just trust me. It's in the works. It's already taken care of. And what I hear there are two things. First, it's the same old pattern. She's telling him, here's exactly what I want to be true. And he's saying, yeah, I've got it. That's thing number one. Thing number two is this spiritual component to their relationship and really the spiritual component to his manipulation of her. He is still convincing her, seemingly successfully, that there's something special about him on a spiritual level, that he can save her in a way no one else can, and that at any moment, he's going to finally save the day for her. Look, I sure do hope I'm wrong about my instinct that whatever's going on with Sarma and Anthony currently is the same ship that we witnessed in the docuseries. But as we just discussed, our instincts are usually right. And really, I think the moral of this story for all of us is that our instincts must be honed. We must listen to them. We must give them the credence they deserve because without them, we're defenseless to people like Anthony and others who would harm us to get something that they want selfishly. And especially for us who consider ourselves spiritual, it is critical that we see through and deeply question any promises that are made to us that can't be substantiated. Most of us on a spiritual journey are looking for something. We're searching for maybe a part of ourselves that we feel has been lost or disconnected from us. We're wanting some sort of fulfillment that we're not getting currently in life. And we can protect ourselves very easily from people like this by simply remembering that what we're looking for is already inside of us. No one else can give it to us. Anyone who promises you fulfillment, meaning in life, cosmic protection, whatever, these spiritual pieces can only be found within you. So with that, my friends, I suppose all I have left to say is honing your instincts and being very discerning about who and what you let in is one of the best forms of spiritual self-care you can practice because we do need to be discerning. As empathic people, as open-minded people, it is a superpower that we're able to entertain things that other people may dismiss because of hubris or being closed-minded. And in the same breath, we need to protect ourselves from those people and ideas that would seek 
to co-opt our agency for their own personal gain. This story from Bad Vegan was a total mindfuck. I highly recommend you watch the series and definitely let me know what you think and what your theories are. Highly recommend Women Who Run With The Wolves. Bluebeard is just one story in this very large book of just golden nuggets of wisdom. I highlight <laughs> like every other sentence in this book. And I would love to know your thoughts about this take on Bad Vegan and Women Who Run With Wolves and how we lose and then regain our instincts. So hit me up on IG. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. Give us a five-star rating if you like the show. That would also mean a lot and really help us out. In the meantime, take amazing care of yourself. Don't listen to anybody who promises you shit. And remember, you are in control of your own life. You are your own magic. You are your own power. No one else can give that to you. I love you. Keep going. Goodbye.